Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and physical therapy pearls of wisdom to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is really to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. So having grown up in Minnesota, August is like one of our last months of great weather in the summer. And I don't know about you, but summer is the time when you would be outside and you would usually be barefoot. There's just nothing that can compare to running around in the grass or clambering on rocks barefoot. And the next best thing to being completely barefoot is doing it in a pair of Vivo barefoot shoes. They literally have any option you'd be looking for, for hiking on aggressive trails, walking on gravel, being in the water. They have incredible water shoes that actually are made partially from algae blooms that are harmful for our environment, but they take those and harvest those to be able to make them into the materials for these shoes. Go check out Vivo if you're looking for the optimal footwear to be able to be outside and be able to feel all the different grounds and terrains underneath your feet. And that will benefit your foot strength, your foot, ankle, and toe mobility so much. We have a link down in the show notes and you can use code OPTIMAL for 15% off. That's special for all of our podcast listeners. And of course, you get their 100-day risk-free trial. So if you try a pair of shoes and are completely satisfied, you can send it back. No questions asked. Check out that link down in the show notes. Use code OPTIMAL to get your 15% off. Now let's head into the interview. We've had a code change, so make sure you use code T-O-B so that you get 15% off. That is T-O-B, like the Optimal Body Podcast. So excited to bring Heather Zwicky on the podcast because she is just brilliant. Her mind is, it blows me away, and this interview is really captivating. She's recognized internationally as an expert and educator in the field of integrative medicine, natural therapies, and the immune system. Dr. Zwicky has been leading natural medicine research for 20 years. She has a PhD in immunology and microbiology from the University of Colorado and completed a postdoctoral fellowship and taught at Yale University. University School of Medicine. Heather is an NIH-funded researcher who helps train the next generation of integrative medicine researchers. She speaks at conferences worldwide, sharing her enthusiasm for natural medicine and science, and she currently serves as the Director of Communication and Innovation at Thena Incorporated, a microbiome-based company. Again, such a great episode. Excited to dive in. Heather, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today to talk about the microbiome. It's mm. not something that we've really talked about in depth on a podcast yet. So excited to chat with you about it. Wonderful. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. I mean, you're, the work that you're doing is really quite incredible. And, and, and starting to bring this idea of root cause, I think, to people so that they could better understand their body on an internal level and understand, okay, now how do I look at nutrition and how do I look at what I'm eating and really putting in my body and how that might be affected. So I think this is just going to be so great to really dive into this in, in depth and get a little bit more information out for us selfishly and for everyone else. So thank you again. Thanks. So I think just starting you know, with what is the microbiome? How would you describe this to somebody who had no idea what you're talking about? 
Yeah. And 10 years ago, even in science and medicine, we wouldn't have really known what you were talking about when you said the (laughs) word microbiome. This is a new topic, but most of us know that when we eat things, the food goes through our stomach and into our gut and that there's microbes in that gut that are chewing up that food and producing all of the things our body needs to survive. Those microbes combined with the microbes on our skin, the microbes in our mouth, all of those things make up the microbiome. So if you break the word down, micro is small and biome is living. It's all the small living organisms that are on us and within us. Mm. And how is this impacted with our environment and what we are putting in our bodies and how does it change? Are we stuck with it once we're born? Like, how does that really develop through life? Wow, that's a monster of a question. <laughs> and you've got two no, minutes. Let's go ahead. <laughs> got two minutes to, talk, to answer that talk one. Through it. <laughs> yeah, so, so your microbiome, all those microbes get inside of you when you're born. So how you're born is going to be the first major thing mm. that influences your microbiome. If you're born vaginally versus if you're born C-section, you get different microbes inside your body. When we're born vaginally, we get the microbes that are typical for a gut microbe. But if we're born C-section, it turns out that our gut gets seeded with microbes from the skin because we're going through the skin instead of through the birth canal. Then we have a next major landmark at right around nine months when we're introducing solid food. And the next major landmark for your microbiome is around three years. And by the time you're three years old, you have all the microbes in your gut that you will have typically through your adulthood. Now, there are certain things that are going to change that. The number one thing, of course, is going to be food. And what you eat will determine the pattern of microbes that you have. So if you tend to be more of a meat eater and a big fat eater and that sort of thing, you're going to have one set of microbes versus if you tend to eat lots of starches and vegetables, that's a different set of microbes. And if you eat a lot of sugar and simple carbohydrates, that's an even different set of microbes. So everybody is going to have a different microbiome dependent on which foods that they put in their mouths. Mm, Some of the other major things that are going to have an effect on your microbiome are the medications that you might take. So Mm -hmm. like if you take antibiotics, we all know that a lot of times you take a course of antibiotics and you get diarrhea. That's because those antibiotics are also killing off microbes in your gut. Mm. And you might not be able to eat the same foods that you were able to eat prior to taking the antibiotics. Mm, that's super interesting. So I feel like I've heard this old adage that I, I want to hear your thoughts on if, if this is fact or fiction or if it's just a, a myth where everyone says all disease starts in the gut. And I think that this is likely related to our microbiome. And I know you also um, are an immunologist or you work in immunology. So um, can you kind of dice that apart for me a little bit? Does all disease really start in the gut? Well, from an immunological perspective, absolutely. Um, It turns out that somewhere between 80 and 85% of your immune system is in your gut. So your immune system is constantly interacting with those microbes. And the microbes can influence what kind of immune response you have and how powerful that immune response is. 
Um, but it turns out, as we've done more and more research on these microbes, they have an influence on just about every body system. Mm. So you can think about how the gut affects the brain. And we now know that there's an axis and that those microbes in your gut are producing neurotransmitters that have an effect on your brain. Mm. And the microbes in your gut are producing what we call metabolites. This would be something like a microbe eats a food and then what it poops out the other side is something that your body is going to use. And those metabolites have an effect on the liver, on the lungs, on the cardiovascular system. In other words, those microbes in the gut have an impact on every other system. And yes, um, that means that the adage that you heard that all disease starts in the gut is is absolutely true. So how can we start to affect our mood then? If it's really kind of connected to our brain and what we're feeling, how can we use what's happening in our gut and our microbiome to change different mood receptors? Oh, so, so, so closely linked to mood. So there's a, f- there's a few different things. So first, let's talk about the microbiome effect, but then let's talk about exorphins too, because mm. they're kind of interesting when it comes to mood. So when you eat certain foods, and, and I'm going to talk about a particular amino acid, it's called tryptophan. So mm. tryptophan, you might have heard of, this is what we get in turkey and chicken, mm-hmm. and it's what puts us to sleep on Thanksgiving Day if we get too <laughs> much of it. Mm-hmm. Tryptophan is an amino acid that your microbes and your microbiome love, and they break down tryptophan into multiple metabolites. One of the metabolites that's made from tryptophan is melatonin, and melatonin, of course, is what will put you to sleep after your big Thanksgiving dinner. But another metabolite of tryptophan is serotonin. And serotonin is the serotonin that makes us happy. Mm. You know, a lot of times when we take things like antidepressants, those are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. In other words, they're trying to get more serotonin into our system to make us feel a little happier. So here's a situation where your nutrition, the ingestion of tryptophan, is going to lead to the production of serotonin, which is going to make you happy and calm. Mm. Now, here's something that's interesting about that. If you have inflammation happening in your body, like you have arthritis or you have some other form of, of inflammation, now when you eat serotonin, instead of it producing, uh, sorry, when you eat tryptophan, instead of producing serotonin, it gets diverted through an inflammatory pathway. And instead, what you make are something called quinolones, which are neurotoxic, mm-hmm. which make you feel, it makes your brain feel cloudy, makes you feel a little confused, a little irritable. So when we have inflammation, we don't make serotonin appropriately. We also don't make melatonin and we don't sleep as well from tryptophan. We could eat the same amino acid and we get a different result. Wow. That's fascinating. And if anything, I'm really grateful for you for this podcast because now rather than just saying, oh, the tryptophan put me to sleep, I'm going to be imagining my microbiome <laughs> pooping out serotonin yeah. and melatonin <laughs> while, I sit in exactly my, right. while I sit in my happy food coma. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to also mention exorphins because I think this is a fun topic as well. 
we've all heard of endorphins, right? When we run and we exercise, we get those good chemicals that make us feel really good. The endorphins that bind to the opioid receptors. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there are a few foods that have what are called an exorphin, meaning they're not coming from within like an endorphin. They're coming from external sources. So we call them exorphins. And these are foods that bind to the opioid receptors. So you get high from these foods. Mm. Now, knowing that, can you guys guess what the foods are? Think uh, about addiction. What a poppy? We have opioid addiction. So what foods do we get addicted to? Sugar. <laughs> foods that are yeah, high in sugary or simple carbohydrates. So sugar... Uh, does is not an exorphin. It's it's they're actually peptides, but sugar is absolutely an addiction. We know from animal studies that the, would it be fatty and salty things? How about mac and cheese? It's Ooh. dairy and wheat. Ooh, mm. yeah, nailed yeah. it. <laughs> uh huh. So why people crave like mac and cheese when they're feeling depressed is because they're looking for that quick exorphin high mm. and. The wheat and the dairy will bind to those opioid receptors and make you feel better. Wow, that's so interesting. So then how do we start to, if if we are, you know, building this inflammation and it's blocking the responses that are we want to be happening and, and what we want to be feeling, how do we start to change what's happening in the microbiomes or the inflammation level so that we change, I mean... So that we get that different result, that different pathway. That's exactly right. And that is the million dollar question. <laughs> I think that the American Gut Project has been working on this for a while. They're located at um, University of California, San Diego. And they published a paper two years ago that was really interesting. One of the things that they showed is that the best way to have a, a positive influence on those microbiome microbes is to eat, are you ready for this? 30 plant-based foods per week. Mm. Mm. Wow! Now that's not 30 servings. That's 30 different plant-based foods per week. Wow. wow. So when they, when they saw that, they saw that even people who had meat in their diet, they were expecting to see that carnivores maybe wouldn't have such a good response, but that's not what they saw at all. As long as you had 30 different plant-based foods per week, it increased the diversity of the microbes in your gut and it reduces inflammation. Mm. And that's ultimately what you were asking about, Jen, mm -hmm. is, is that yeah. inflammatory pathway. Now, they've had a follow-up study that I thought was also really interesting. And that was um, looking at what we would call live foods or fermented foods. Mm. So these are foods like sauerkraut and kombucha and kimchi, these foods that have live cultures in them. And it turns out the one thing that you can do that is even better than 30 plant-based foods per week is adding live foods every day. Mm. So it might be adding yogurt, although you want to be careful about the sugar content in the yogurt, or adding some kombucha. Or, and it doesn't have to be a lot of live food. It just has to be some live food that you are adding to your diet. So if we think about those two things, where we've got 30 plant-based foods per week, and 
believe me, <laughs> the average American does not get 30 plant-based foods <laughs> per week. So, and, and a lot of them want to count pizza crust as a plant-based food. Yeah. <laughs> really what we're talking about are, you know, increasing the amount of vegetables, nuts, seeds, berries, spices. Yeah. Um, spices are a really good one for making a healthy microbiome and decreasing mm. your inflammation. And teas, teas often have multiple herbs in them. And so they are also really good for your microbiome. The other thing that I would say from a American diet perspective for reducing inflammation is omega-3 fatty acids. Mm. And that's where fish oil usually comes in. Um, the smaller the fish, the better the oil. Or you can buy omega-3s on their own mm -hmm. where fish oil has omega-6s and omega-3s, you can buy straight up omega-3 fatty acids. So I, I, I think that's a super, I'm kind of fascinated. I'm trying to think about how many different plant-based foods I have per week. I, I almost <laughs> want to count, but kind of like you said, in the standard American diet, they're probably not getting close to that 30 number. Right. And I want to kind of differentiate because I know we hear a lot these days like, oh, the, the good bacteria versus the bad bacteria and how people mm. are finding that they have a large amount of this bad bacteria in their gut. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be a good bacteria or a bad bacteria in the gut? Yeah, and, and I almost shy away from calling them good or bad because one of the things that we're discovering is that any bacteria can be good or bad. Mm. What matters is whether it's in balance. So if you have a really healthy bacteria, let's say a lactobacillus, that's one that a lot of people have heard of because it tends to be in probiotics. But let's say you've got lactobacillus and lactobacillus is overgrowing. Now this bacteria that's usually really good for you is bad because there's too much of it. So what we're looking for is all of the microbes to be in balance with each other. And often when we have um, an infection, like, like let's take um, C. diff, a Clostridium mm -hmm. difficile infection that causes diarrhea in a lot of people, C. diff is normal microbes. It's in your gut all the time. Mm -hmm. The only time we have trouble with it is when it overgrows and starts producing a toxin. If it overgrows and produces a toxin, then you're sick as a dog. But if it's missing entirely, you're also sick as a dog. Mm. Like what we need is we need that bacteria to be there and be present in a normal amount. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. How do we start to understand, you know, I mean, are we, is it just getting testing done to understand, you know, what kind of bacteria we have, where we might need to improve? How do we start to kind of understand this within our own bodies? Yeah, there are tests that can be done, and certainly these tests are becoming more and more popular. Um, but one of the things that we're discovering in this field as it's growing is that the microbes between two individuals tend to be very different. So you guys are going to have very different microbes than I have. Mm -hmm. What is conserved between individuals are the metabolites, the things that the microbes make. So you might have a different microbiome than I do, and your microbiome ecosystem might look more like a forest, and my microbiome ecosystem might look more like a marine ecosystem. But mm. even though we have these two very different ecosystems, 
what's being produced by those ecosystems is similar. So you might say, well, what is similar between the forest and the ocean? And what's similar is that they both produce oxygen and reduce carbon dioxide. The pathways are the same. It's just that they look very different from each other. Mm -hmm. I say that because you could go get your microbiome tested and they can send back all the names of all the microbes in your gut. And it could look very different than all the names of all the microbes in my gut. And we could both still be very healthy. Yeah. Mm. Because what our microbes are doing is still healthy. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think that, you know, kind of points to one of my next questions, which has to do with is supplementation of microbes or how, you know, there's all these companies out there now with the, the newest probiotic or, you know, thing yeah. that's going to help change your gut health. And how can people dice through the noise out there and really understand what supplement might help them? Are there supplements out there that can help your gut health? What, what would you say to that? I think it's a really hard question for where we are right now. Mm. Right now, a lot of times people will say, oh, take a probiotic. Mm -hmm. And yeah. what I would say is that's the equivalent of saying, take a drug, mm. right? Probiotics are live microorganisms and not all probiotics are the same. So you go out and you pick one off the shelf and it might be a good probiotic for your particular microbiome or it might not be yeah. and you don't know would you randomly go to a pharmaceuticals office and pick a random pharmaceutical off the shelf <laughs> you wouldn't right yeah i mean it sounds ridiculous like all of a sudden you're taking you know a, an antidepressant and you don't need one and that same thing is happening right now with probiotics and that people are taking them randomly and sometimes people have great reactions and sometimes they have terrible reactions. Mm. And that's because where the science is, is we don't know yet how to pair a particular probiotic to a particular individual. We're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And yet we're, we're taking these things. So I personally think the fermented foods are a much better option than taking a probiotic. Yeah, I also think prebiotics are are better. Eating those foods that feed our our microbes that's better than taking a probiotic. But let's say that you want to take a probiotic. We know that certain bacteria are better than others at reducing inflammation. So if you're taking a probiotic because you want to reduce inflammation, then you would want to choose a probiotic that has more bifidobacterium strains in it. Whereas if you're looking to improve your allergies, there are some clinical trials that have shown that probiotics that contain more lactobacillus strains are better for improving allergies. So it's, again, it's kind of this thing where it depends what you want to do. Now, there's other research out that suggests that probiotics themselves are not alive by the time you take them. By the time you get them off the shelf, you take them home, you eat them, they have to go through your stomach acid. By the time they reach their gut, they're dead. Mm. So what's having the medicinal effect is the question. Yeah, Because we know they still work, but it may not be that it's a live bacteria that's working. And there's been an invention of a new word over the last two years. It's called postbiotic. 
Hmm. And postbiotic is what we call that microbe poop. When the microbes digest food and then they poop out stuff the other side, that's now a postbiotic. So now we're starting to see postbiotics added to products. I'm seeing postbiotics in foods. I'm seeing postbiotics in um, antiperspirants. Like they're showing up everywhere. So important to know what a postbiotic is. It just means that we're not worried about that microbe being alive anymore. We fed that microbe. It produced everything it was going to produce. And now we're using those metabolites as medicine instead of using the live microbe as medicine. That's so fascinating. And when would we be looking to add in postbiotics then? Well, so postbiotics, you, you asked what to take, you know, you've got a GI upset. Postbiotics may be more appropriate for a GI upset than a probiotic. Mm. There was a study that came out in 2019 that showed that, um, you know, a lot of people will have a GI upset after they take antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And then they think, oh, I'm going to take probiotics to repopulate my gut. Well, probiotics don't repopulate your gut, especially not if they're dead. And what that study showed was that probiotics will actually delay repopulation of your gut Mm. with your normal microbes. You do better to use prebiotics or postbiotics than to use probiotics. Mm. Wow, that's so fascinating. That's fascinating. And so I I had a question about, because you said these 30 you know, eating 30 different plant-based foods. That's one of the best ways to mm-hmm. um, develop a more healthy microbiome. And I, I think I saw a post, it might have been on when I was scrolling through your Instagram feed on plant-full versus carnivore diet because there's this new resurgence of the carnivore diet and all these claims too about how using a carnivore or an animal-based diet can reduce gut bloat and normalize your gut health. And I kind of want to hear you explain out what what's actually happening when we just limit ourselves to animal-based products and what we might be missing um, by eliminating those plants. Sure. So when you eat animal-based products, you're getting a bunch of amino acids and you're getting a bunch of peptides. And it's true that some of the microbes in your gut can digest those amino acids like tryptophan and some of those peptides that you're eating but many of the microbes can't only use protein as a energy source. So what ends up happening is over time, the microbes that rely on fiber, on plant-based fiber, they die off. And what you might experience is less bloating because often those microbes are the microbes that do produce gas. And you might experience less Um, inflammation. So I've seen people use a carnivore diet for autoimmunity because they see their immune system is reacting less. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Your immune system will react less. But it also means you're not producing some of the essential B vitamins, you're not producing some of the essential neurotransmitters, and you're not producing um, some of the essential immune chemicals. So, for example, short-chain fatty acids, which are a, um, a very beneficial metabolite, are not produced from eating protein. They're produced from eating plants. And if you don't have short-chain fatty acids, then your immune system kind of goes into tilt. And it 
may become overreactive or underreactive to infections that you might get. Mm. So over the short term, a carnivore diet might help you get sugar out of your diet. It might help you um, feel a little better from that perspective because your blood glucose regulates. But over the long term, in order to in order to have a healthy microbiome and have longevity, like you know, live a long, healthy life, you have to include plant-based foods. That's really, I mean, I think that's so important for people to hear. Can we go on the flip side on, you know, if if someone was fully vegan or raw vegan, you know, does that have an impact if you're now not getting any kind of animal products in your diet? It does. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Usually, if you're a vegetarian, um, but not vegan, you still will get some of those essential proteins that your microbiome needs through eggs or, um, you know, fish if you're a, a pescavarian. But if you're entirely vegetarian, vegan, or raw-based vegan, what, what you're really missing are the omega-3 fatty acids, the omega-6 fatty acids, and again, there are chemicals that can't be produced without those things. So um, a lot of times vegetarians will add flaxseed oil or chia seed oil to get the omega-3s covered, but they don't actually have all of the same properties as a fish oil omega-3. Mm. So, um, so your immune system ends up being, again, shortchanged. Uh, can you survive? You can, but you may not have the best longevity if you, again, aren't getting all of the different food groups. Hmm. And so I kind of want to talk sleep and how the health or lack of health in our <laughs> microbiome can impact our sleep. Oh, sleep. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's insane um, how much sleep issues there are right now. Yeah. We know that since the pandemic that some people are oversleeping, um, meaning that they're sleeping 11, 12 hours a night and other people are really undersleeping. And when I say undersleeping, you know, eight hours a night is um, what we would what we would really want. And people are getting four or five or six and and it's really just not enough so one of the things that happens with sleep is that we reset our immune system overnight and that reset means it's kind of like you clean out all of the inflammation and you get to start over the next day mm -hmm. so if you're not sleeping eight hours a night you don't get your inflammation reset which means if you have any sort of inflammation it's going to be worse mm -hmm. How does the microbiome affect sleep? Um, that is complicated. So you have two different types of clock in your body. You have in your brain, you have something called the suprachiasmic nucleus. And it's like the master clock. It's the clock that, that is telling you to be awake during the daytime and to sleep at night. And it's trying to regulate all your organ functions according to daylight. 
You also have a peripheral clock, and this is the one that the microbiome tends to interact with more. So when you're feeling tired in the afternoon and you want to nap, that's more your peripheral clock. That's not your suprachiasmic nucleus. But just like the rest of your body does a reset when you sleep, so does your microbiome. So if you get up in the middle of the night and you start eating, you just have woken up all of those microbes because now they have to process that food that you just started eating. And now they're going to mess with the peripheral clock saying, hey, it must be morning because this person is eating and you're going to be awake longer. Mm. So it, it completely messes up your, your sleep cycle for folks who do the midnight snacking. I point. I was pointing at Dom as yeah. you were talking about this because that I'm, is something he's. Oh, <laughs> I'm a notorious midnight snacker, and I will say though, then when you, then when you started saying it affects your internal clock because you're not going to be able to go to sleep, I shook my head no because as soon, like my head hits the pillow and I'm out, so I've got I've got something else going on there. But <laughs> well, what's your midnight stack? Um, recently it's been yogurt and fruit. Or like a yogurt fruit seed mixture. See, now you've got tryptophan in uh, that mixture, right? Yeah. Mm. So you're that. eating something that is going to help you sleep. The dairy has the tryptophan. It has that protein, which will help you sleep. The folks who tend to have bigger problems are the ones who get up and, and eat sugar. Yeah. So they mm. get up and they go for their Snickers or they go for a bowl of ice cream the tryptophan is in the ice cream, but the sugar can totally overwhelm the tryptophan and have you, you know, buzzing at night if, if you're eating too much sugar in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you reinforcing my midnight snacking routine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> no, well, I want to I go into sugar because you've mentioned that now a couple times. And mm -hmm. it just, how does that really affect our microbiome? At what level? What kind of sugar are we talking about as well? Like, do we have to cut it out completely? How, how is this going to affect on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, this has been a really hard, um, hard thing to study because in humans, we, we can't really get away from sugar. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, you want to do a study in a human and you tell them that they have to avoid sugar and, you know, it's all over. Um, and I know that because I've done those studies um, where we've screened 800 people to wind up with 36 people in the study because nobody will give up sugar. Uh, so, you know, you have to do this in, in animals typically. So the first thing I want to say is that prior to what... Uh, Prior to our study, I might not have believed this, but um, and contrary to what you hear on TV, not all sugar is created equal. Mm -hmm. We did a study of glycemic index, and we could show that high fructose corn syrup actually raises your glycemic index about twice as much as sugar does. Wow. Mm. So it's, it's different. And then if you compare sugar to some of the natural sugars like honey and maple syrup and those sorts of things, we actually see that honey and agave are about 30% of, of what high fructose corn syrup would be. Like if you set high fructose corn syrup at 100, then sugar would be 50. Honey, maple syrup, agave is around 30. 
And stevia, which of course is a natural sweetener, is minus 10. It actually lowers your blood glucose. Wow. Mm. Now, from a microbiome perspective, does it matter? We know that sugar is processed by the microbiome. And we know that um, if we look at animals, it increases inflammation, especially in the colon. So people who have inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease or any of those sorts of things, sugar can be a real problem because of the, the high inflammatory reaction. But now, another thing that's been shown with sugar is that it changes the microbiota composition. And one of the things that it does is it does exactly the opposite of what 30 plant-based foods do. Mm. So getting 30 plant-based foods decreases inflammation and increases the diversity of your microbes in your gut. Sugar does exactly the opposite. It increases inflammation and it decreases the bacterial diversity in your gut. Wow. So we're having a bad effect with sugar. Yeah. Now, it's different if that sugar is in a fruit. So like if you're eating a berry, because there's fiber there and because there are other um, phytochemicals there, you actually end up being anti-inflammatory if you eat a blueberry. But if you isolate the sugar from the blueberry and feed just the sugar, then you get the negative effect. Hmm. So That's the polyphenols and the fiber and all of those things are actually beneficial if you're going to be eating um, a a fructose source of sugar. Mm. And then you've got the the sweeteners, the artificial sweeteners, and those are just a disaster for your gut. They kill off different microbes. They they make certain microbes behave really weirdly. Um, Artificial sweeteners are one of the worst things that you can do for your gut and your gut brain axis. Like mm. we see the artificial sweeteners impact the microbes that make neurotransmitters. And we see uh, an influence then on memory, dementia, like your ability to concentrate, all of those sorts of outcomes. That's really interesting. And what I do see a lot um, going around, you know, it's well, the, the poison is in the dose. Right. So if I just have some things with artificial sweetener here and there, like, is it going to be that bad for me? So how do we start to look at the dose of things that we're taking in? And is it the minute I have it, it's really impactful. It's it's harsh on that connection and it's going to take time to rebuild. Or is it, you know, you can have it every once in a while. You don't have. You, how do we start to understand that that dosage? That's a fantastic question, and nobody has figured that out yet. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my mother has always said everything in moderation, and maybe we live by the everything in moderation um, right now, that saying right now. Well, we don't know the answer. Um, mm. What we do know is that often when people go on a weight loss um, regimen, they'll switch so that everything is artificial sweeteners. And we know that that is highly detrimental. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're just having it now and then, then, you know, are you going to see the same effect? I would say that the research isn't out yet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. 
So the line might not be at a six pack of Diet Coke a day, but like <laughs> one every once in a while. No, I think that's great to to always be keeping in mind like that the dose matters and everything in moderation. But other than mentioning earlier that eating a very plant plant-based food diet can can help with the diversity and health of our microbiome. How does somebody just go about doing this on their own and figuring out, okay, what foods might be supportive to my microbiome? Because you said everyone's is different. So everyone might respond slightly differently to different foods or different combinations of foods. So if somebody's just at home, do you have any suggestions on how they can start to explore what might be best for them? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things that I always tell people is don't go from zero to 30 in a week. Mm. You know, if you're starting at because you'll feel terrible. Yeah. Um, your microbes will not be able to digest all that new fiber and you'll have gas and you'll just feel terrible. But look at where your starting point is. And depending on where your starting point is, being able to add two or three things per week until you get yourself up to 30 foods. That, so that means that you might be at 30 foods in you know a few months. That's fantastic. Like adding a couple things per week is good. And when you add those things, pay attention to how you feel. I, I tell people, keep a journal. And when you have a negative reaction, then you can go back and look and go, wow, you know, I don't do well with white beans. I do okay with lentils, but not with white beans and, and remove that again. So um, I think keeping a food diary and keeping track of the symptoms that you get from some of the foods that you eat is a good way to look at it. Another thing that a colleague of mine always talks about, and that is you have to look at your own food story. And what, what he means when he says your food story is that, in, and this is not, you know, unique to the United States, but our culture is centered around food. Yeah. We go out to eat with people to celebrate. We go, you know, take a friend out to breakfast and catch up with them. And, and we use food as a reward for ourselves often. We use yeah. food um, as more than fuel. And you need to know what your motivations are and, and what your celebrations are and whatnot before you try to make changes to your diet. Because whether or not those changes are going to be able to be maintained will be dependent on how they fit into your life. And, yeah. and in order to know that, you've got to know your food story. Yeah, I think that's so, so incredibly important. So well put. And Heather, my goodness, you are just a wealth of knowledge. I am blown yeah. away with all the information. And there's just, I feel like I can continue to ask all the questions. And there's so much to learn here. Where can people continue to learn this information from you and, and absorb this? I actually provide education on our company website. So... Um, the, the name of the company is Thana, T-H-A-E-N-A. And if you go to Thana.com, I'm the person behind the blogs and I'm the person okay. behind the videos and there's a podcast there and I provide physician education as well as education for the public. So anyone who's interested in learning more about the microbiome can find out information there. I do want to add one thing, just knowing that 
you have a huge focus on exercise as well. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that we know about exercise is that when the microbiome produces all these little metabolites, exercise is what gets them into the bloodstream and gets mm. them to the right organ system. Mm. So if you combine eating those 30 foods, those 30 plant-based foods per week with an exercise regimen, it like amplifies everything. And, you know, the whole orchestra is playing the finale at that point. So it's fantastic. That's great. I think that's a perfect way to kind of wrap it, wrap it all up in a bow with adding in the last body system of exercise. You got to fuel yourself right. And then you got to move it to get that fuel all around the body. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us and talk a bit into the microbiome. Heather, we really appreciate it. Thank you. So many incredible tidbits in there about how we can actually benefit our microbiome. I don't know about you, but I'm actually going to be taking a little bit more inventory about how many plant-based foods I have in my diet to really develop a good, healthy gut. So if you love that, please think about sharing it out with someone. If you know somebody who has gut issues, send the link forward to them. And if you really have been listening to all our podcasts and benefiting from the information, please consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we'll see you next time on the Optimal Body Podcast.